If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like or do or think about or talk about Just Not Sports. On today's show, we will talk to longtime sports columnist and World Series of Poker analyst Norman Chad. It's that time of year. It's the World Series of Poker. It's the all the chips being played on the way to the final table. Norman is going to talk about his lifelong passion for bowling. Standard bowling, duck pin bowling, all bowling. And he will also say that if Donald Trump wants to boost his presidency, sir, stop trying to fix health care and start Fixing Saturday afternoon bowling on television. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. With me, he's a bowling connoisseur in a way. He's an all-star caliber public relations professional who has logged time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's 7-10 split Adam Willard. Uh, Brad, I've bowled three times in my life. <laughs> what were your scores? Uh, terrible. Not good at all. I don't. E- I don't even remember. I'm not sure how the scoring works, but whatever it was, it was bad. Do you know what Very a turkey few strikes. is? Do I know what a what? A turkey is a bowling turn. No. A turkey. No, explain. It's when you get three straight strikes. Oh, I definitely have not got a turkey or a duck or any other bird. I was in a bowling league um, in college, like right after college. And it was mostly just dudes getting just completely plowed. Um, But we would do all these like obnoxious, you know, when when someone got a strike, you'd go up and do like a Bash Brothers, only like make the X over your head and like X, you know, X hit somebody else's forearms making an X. Sure. Yeah, we were uh, we were real obnoxious douches. I managed to live in Green Bay for seven years and not join a bowling league, which I find to be a miracle. <laughs> it really is a miracle. Or it's a travesty, Adam. Or it's a travesty. I'm going to go with miracle. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we got a pack show. No Gareth. He's on vacation this week somewhere on the East Coast. Joe Reed, our producer extraordinaire, is out in Seattle. He sends his regrets, ladies. He, uh, he's planning his wedding, tied up with work. We will get to Joe. I think he's going to resume regular standard uh, show practices next week, Adam. So you had a cake tasting? Is that what, what he's doing? He might maybe... be cake tasting a little overrated for the wedding planning. Uh, it just, I didn't like it. it was, I mean, it was fine, but I thought it was going to be a lot more fun. And instead it was like, oh, you're making cake like freaking work. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. You're taking all the fun out of cake because it's, it becomes an important decision rather than a recreational activity. Like sitting down with sitting down to eat cake with your wife, your prospective wife, and having to like sit there and stress over prices and which one's right and what's gonna everyone gonna like. It takes all the fun out of something that should be really fun. It's like um, 
it's like going to a porn shop with your wife and it turning into a trip like to Blockbuster. Like you think it's going to be funny, like picking out some DVD and then you end up arguing over like which one to get. Which strap on you're going to put on? <laughs> no, DVD, man. I didn't say oh. I didn't say sex shop. Oh, I thought you were getting in. I thought we were getting into some toy talk, but OK, <laughs> maybe another show. <laughs> and we're cutting all of this. OK. Right now on the show, we don't just open the show. We go wide open with it. Adam, it's been a while since we've done this. A couple of weeks, right? You and me, back on the horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been out of out of commission the last couple of weeks, and by that I mean working. Um, so, yeah, this will be fun. So I got a couple of topics. I'm going to jump right into one. Uh, it's NBA Summer League season. It just wrapped up this week. I believe the Lakers won the Summer League championship, which is a bit like winning the NIT, isn't it? Yeah, they did win, and our our boy Ball uh, Ball was the MVP. So that means great things for the rest of the season. Lakers are destined to beat the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals. It does mean that, like sometimes, dudes just get unfit. Like, un. Let me say this: It does mean sometimes life just works out for people that it probably shouldn't. And in this case, I'm not talking about Lonzo. I'm talking about his dad who like somehow like just manifested a Lakers number two pick for his son to go uh, to the team that he wanted and uh, has instant success in summer league. And everyone's like, Oh, he he made up the the hype. And now we're destined to 30,000 more Lonzo ball, uh, appearances on sports talk telling uh, women reporters to stay in your lane, which is still slyly the most offensive thing I've heard in sports in like two months somehow. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joel Embiid said basically he's a joke, and I totally agree. All right, so anyway, speaking of shoes in Summer League, so Bulls player, uh, our hometown Bulls, Denzel Valentine, He Adam, he was wearing these crazy shoes. Did you see these? I did see them. Okay, so is he... You know, first of all, it's time for us to play a little game Adam and I like to call, does that make me racist? So Adam, I'm going to ask you a question. You tell me, does asking this question make me racist? Are you a sneakerhead? Am I a sneakerhead? Yeah. That's a... I think it's all relative. I have some Jordans. What what would you define as a sneakerhead? Well, first of all, can can I ask that of you without just like is totally stereotyping an African American gentleman yeah. that that like are you sneakerhead? No, this is a this is a good discussion. I would say What's a sneakerhead is someone who who who's who's shoe um stash has moved from functional to collection. Uh you mean they don't wear them, they just collect the shoes? Like if you if you collect if you collect shoes, if you have like a like a ton of perfectly good shoes and you're you're constantly looking for more shoes and trying to just amass a huge pile of them, I think no, that's number one. I, I've had my phases. I'd say in the past year I went on a streak of uh, ordering more Jordans than I probably needed and got and sold some on eBay. I do have the SB Nike Dunk De La Souls sitting here in front of me, which are my favorite pair of sneakers. 
And then I recently bought a pair of uh, black leather, high top, creative recreation shoes. So um, I would say I'm not a sneakerhead. My girlfriend, who plans to move to Chicago, I hope, uh, at some point this year, says that I have to get down to 20 pairs. So in your mind, that might make me a sneakerhead. First of all, shots fired to the girlfriend. Uh, Pressure's on. Public statement. Yeah, she knows. She knows what's up. <laughs> Second of all, Adam, you and I probably wear the same sneaker she, size. So you can you can dump a few of those pairs on me, bro. Uh, I wear a size 14, so I'll get you two pairs of socks and we'll be all good. Might need three. <laughs> Since I'm size, t- I'm a generous 10 and a half. Uh, oh, okay. Okay, so Denzel Valentine is wearing these shoes that I think are called the Balenciaga. Okay. Okay. They're speed trainers. They retail for five ninety five in the same neighborhood as Lonzo's five hundred hour shoes. Adam, they Which look like socks. I posted them on the Just Not Sports Twitter at Just Not Sports. They look like socks with a sole. Or if you yeah. saw Alien Covenant, they look just like the new Neomorph Alien, where they're just like a clump, a mass of of sock, like white athletic sock like material sitting on top of the base of a shoe. Yeah, I really think that they I really had thought that they meaning people who made shoes had got it right. Um I'm not quite sure where this abomination came from, but um yet it costs how much did you say? Almost $600. $600. You buy you buy 3 pairs of Jordans for $600. You know what it looks nice like? Ones. It looks like a shoe was uncircumcised. <laughs> if that's possible. If there's like a white a white foreskin dick skin around a shoe, that's what these look like. And he's wearing them on a professional court. I get it if it's like look, we're in an age where athletes are making fashion statements which we fully support. You know, they, the SI came out their their best dressed list, Russell Westbrook on the top and Russ just wears clothes to make statements cam newton dresses to make a statement i, mean, I don't think they i don't think they get up and say i look great wearing a uh you know a onesie on the cover of sports illustrated or a, or a, a a barbershop quartet hat they're just being provocative through fashion which i like but these are on the court i just don't know how you wear shoes with no shoes on the court i don't either that's when you know you're an exceptional athlete when you can wear a um uncircumcised sock and <laughs> still ball out. Yeah, man. You got to circumcise that shit. You got to circumcise that stuff, Denzel. All right, Adam. Wide open. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? I don't have anything. I want to keep going with your topics. Oh, man, because I got plenty. All right. I, I know. I, I read yours that you sent to me, and I was like, I think that about covers it. <laughs> uh, Tamba Holly. Am I, is it? Yes. Is that how I pronounce it? As far as I know, that's correct. Okay, sincere apologies uh, uh, if I have not. He's the linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs. He played at Penn State. And Adam, he has a new rap track. Joe Reed, hit me with that rap track. Shine bright like the stars, you know. You be mine, Dodo. I be the Adam, you be evil. Now you're Apple, I go eat, Stack, stack on your hips, so 
Make you dance like a lip so Pretty face, all nice Staring at your pretty face We can have menages Wonder what we'll make you say You don't need a man All of my other guys are frivolous Take you where you wanna go Anywhere just pick a take Take this ride in my Lambo Bad gal dancing a lingo You and I kill him like Rambo Give it to you every angle Girl, I like your style, Girl, you looking fly, yo Ugh, Adam. Now look, generous use of the auto-tune there, but yeah, I'm digging it, man. I'm down. I'm ready to pay my own money for an album that I could probably stream for free through other services. I am you, on you, board with this. You would buy this? Yes, of course. Um, See, I think we. I think I finally realized that we come from two different places when it comes to athlete rap or art. You give them credit for trying, and it really excites you. I am still of the mind that what they produce has to be better than the average musician for me to buy it. And this is an average track and an average, very average rap video, but something that I, I, I listened to it yesterday. And I've, if you played it right now, it would be like the first time I heard it again because I don't really remember. I remember that it was decent. I remember that if you put it on the radio right now, it would probably get some play. But you've got to be a Mon Shumpert in my world in order to truly get my attention. <laughs> Look, there's only so many Mon Shumperts to go around. So many Dame Lutz to go around. I want more guys making. <laughs> I want more guys making making hip hop. And listen to this description from the website. Holly or Ali, I'm sorry, <laughs> debuts his skills as a singer, rapper, and songwriter with the release of his first single, One For Me. This feel-good, Afrobeat-driven track is the first of several forthcoming songs from his independent label, Relume. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which means the one that shines the brightest. Adam, damn, we got a whole yeah. album of this coming. Yeah, are you excited about it? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay, let's break down the video. I need a I, li- we- I needed a little bit more from the video. I'm not going to lie. I needed a little bit more from yeah. the video. Yeah. Who is this woman? Do we assume this is his truly a significant other or this is a video chick? What's what are your theories? I think she was after the video shoot. <laughs> God, God. Yeah, they were together a long time. They were in like three or four different locations. And, yeah. uh, you know, she's a nice looking woman and she's doing the thing that unfortunately defines most uh, music videos. Would it just a woman looking pretty serving no real function except for ornamental? Uh, and I, the, OK, so here's the thing. The video itself to me looks like someone said, I saw the Lonely Island I'm on a boat video and that's the only <laughs> rap video I've ever seen and I want to make a copy of that. And so that copy of a copy didn't quite turn out as good as the first copy of a copy. I think it was like the director was like, hey, my cousin looks pretty good in a bathing suit. Um, do you have the afternoon off? Let's shoot a video. <laughs> well, dude, we got to give him credit for singing though because a lot of this is him singing. Now, it's a lot of autotune. But he's yeah he's giving it a go. He's not just he's not just kind of like Le'Veon Bell style, kind of sloppily throwing down a few rhymes, and then everyone else is doing the heavy lifting around him. There's the some off- musician. There's some musicianship behind it. Was it what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, man. I thought it was great. 
I thought it was I thought it was a lot of fun, dude. I, I'm not I, gonna I, lie. I was when when you sent it, I I cringed a little bit, and then I have to say two minutes into it, it wasn't bad. Not not particularly memorable, but I I'll tell you what, the next video you send me from him, uh, I will have no problem listening to. I mean, I'm hoping we get a lot more videos here because I'm just gonna say, <laughs> man, this guy's got a whole album. And I want to see videos for all the songs. Maybe a Just Not Sports album launch party. Oh, I'm in. I am in on that. Uh, we'll, we'll do it at we'll do it at the Bird's Nest. We'll do it here, right in Chicago. Dude, at the Bird's Nest would be pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. All Nobody right. would know what the fuck's going on. That'd be crazy. <laughs> last thing. Last thing. Yep. There's a new movie coming out about McEnroe versus Borg. And yeah. it's got a pretty great trailer. And it's uh, you know infamously got Shia LaBeouf um, playing John McEnroe, which I, in it's my weird way, I think is pretty inspired casting. I mean, if you're gonna, Perfect. if you're gonna, I mean, McEnroe at the beginning of his part of his career was like a super talented dot guy who rubbed ninety nine percent of people the wrong way, and you know, you could say the same thing about Shy, but maybe dip down that talent a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah, he's not uh, yeah, quite ninety ninth percentile, you know. <laughs> well, he's gotten in trouble again recently for uh, being belligerent with cops, so. Uh, I'm interested to see what the promotional tour for this movie is like. All right, so here's my point on this. Macaro went on the Bill Simmons podcast, and Simmons uh-huh. was like, "How much? Uh, how much have you been involved in this?" And he's like, "None. Like, no one sent me a script. No one has consulted me. No one has asked me anything." Would you? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not knowing, like, knowing knowing what his temper is like, or at least historically has been. You want this guy to have cre- any kind of creative say? I I want to get a little bit more information about my, the subject of my film when he it, when it, first of all it's a trivial sports story. All right, it's not like they're doing like where were the WMDs the movie and you got to play Dick Cheney and he's not going to tell you what he knew when they were looking for yellow cake. I'm. T- this is John McEnroe versus Borg in Wimbledon. It's a story of like a really famous set tiebreaker. It's not Shakespeare. So you're telling me Shia LaBeouf can't shoot this guy a text and be like, hey, can we have a coffee? And I just want to feel you out. I, I thought the whole thing was bizarre. Yeah. I think Shia LaBeouf might sit down and drink a scissor with him. But um... <laughs> <laughs> do you think do you think that movie's going to be any good? Uh yeah, I think the movie will be good. Shia LaBeouf's a talented, talented actor, but I yeah that that is unfortunate. McEnroe wasn't allowed to be part of it, but maybe they had their image, maybe they had their story. As we know, not all sports biopics remember the Titans, for example, are true to form, and so they have their fantasy they want to tell. And I say, let them tell it. Now McEnroe remember, remember own, the Titans famously person. made all the um all the black people way too nice in that movie. They were, they were in real life. They were horrible to those poor white dudes. Uh, well, no, <laughs> no, but Herman Boone w- apparently was, uh, a rotten person, uh, rotten coach and really a mean guy and, uh, made to be a, uh, more of a sympathetic figure 
in the movie. Um, so there's a lot of creative storytelling that happens in these sports biopics. It is filmmaking after all. So I forgive them for not asking McEnroe and he's kind of a dick. So, well, okay. Sports movies get a lot of flack for being not accurate. I mean, I, Michael Orr famously, you know, castigated the blind side for, you know, making him a, a caricature as we've talked about the Michael Jordan television movie from the nineties, uh, you know, shockingly <laughs> took vast liberties with minor details. Um, or oh. even, even just like the way they have to like the, the, I remember miracle when they were dramatizing miracle and then changing things. And it's like, why do you need to dramatize this that much? I get it. You're trying to make a movie. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's not a documentary. You, you, you can take liberties, but Sometimes you just say, this is a pretty dramatic thing on its own. Like, I don't think you need to completely bastardize the story. Right. Like Space Jam. I mean, crazy exaggerated. Yeah. The most unrealistic thing about Space Jam, Adam, was uh, was the fact that Jordan wasn't gambling in it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Always bet on yourself. There were, no, there were no space casinos, apparently. Yeah. What other sports movies come to mind as like completely outrageous i don't know outrageous but um i always have a hard time where there's a character in the movie that becomes the magical negro and i don't think any is more infamous than the legend of bagger vance where will smith this character with no (laughs) um, background or any kind of character and speaks like in a very unintelligible black accent uh, comes and saves Matt Damon, the suffering war hero. It makes him a great golfer again. I could do without those movies forever. Yeah, I don't like fictional characters that that have that magical. Um, uh, well, wait, hey, can I say magical Negro in this context? You can say magic. Yeah, it's a literary term. Sure, you can use it. Yeah, so like, I don't like um, you know the, the one Morgan Freeman played when he played that. Uh, uh, that fictional character Nelson Mandela in, uh, in <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> more, more or less uh, half of Morgan Freeman's career has been playing that character. What about uh, uh, what about radio? He played, Remember Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh. playing radio, but he was a real person. And actually, that story, that movie is dog shit. But that story is amazing. The Sports Illustrated article on radio was was really good. Yeah, that's the one that got lost a little bit in adaptation. In the adaptation, but uh, yeah, fantastic story, just bad movie. <laughs> All right, any more wide open, Adam? No, man, I think we're good. All right, well, right now we're gonna do an interview with Norman Chad, one of my favorite sports media personalities of the past few decades. You might remember him from, uh, you know, his his couch slouch column, which was syndicated for decades across the country you might remember him from uh his his work with with espn over the years whether it was uh popping up on uh debate shows or or sports reporters and things like that uh i think most people know norman as really the the voice of um analysis on the world series of poker and he's he's in vegas we talked to him a little bit he's he actually pretty much lives in vegas in a casino for six weeks during this time of year and just does nonstop analysis of the world series of poker. So we took a break for, uh, from that for him and, and gave him a, a forum to talk about another passion he had in bowling. And 
We go pretty deep. We talk about uh, duckpin bowling on the East Coast since we were both uh, former Marylanders. We talk about the industry of bowling and how he would try to resurrect it. We talk about television bowling and he makes the case for why it was a, a really underrated sport and I think makes some pretty good points as well as we kind of break down some of the more famous and infamous personalities in the bowling world and and other kind of nuances of the game. So it's a fun conversation even if you don't like bowling or don't do it a whole lot. It's more about the kind of the culture of, of a sport that once was uh, really at the forefront of American athletics and now has receded into a, into a niche. And then after that, also, Norman's just a funny guy and lots of just funny stories, funny anecdotes. Uh, I think you really enjoyed. And then afterwards, we will be back with our distractions. And I'm going to tell you about a new movie involving one of my favorite fictional serial killers and no it is not played by morgan freeman (laughs) (laughs) stick around excited (laughs) what is your let me start i I can't wait to talk bowling been been Doing, doing my homework all night on this, but um, real quick, what's your schedule like during the actual World Series of Poker? Like, uh, how's your how's your day breakdown? Uh, well, it's changed, but uh, so the essentially uh, the whole World Series takes place in the Rio Casino in Las Vegas, and before we get to the main event, which is what we televise every year, there are earlier World Series events. Yeah. So the thing goes from June one. The whole thing goes for about seven weeks from the beginning of June until late July, and uh, we also now do live streams of some of the earlier events. So I'm here most of June, here most of July, and it's essentially walking into not just a casino, but like a warehouse poker room, you know, <laughs> in the morning, like 11 o'clock in the morning, and then leaving it like sometime after midnight, uh, where you just want to walk through a car wash to somehow just get whatever's on your skin off of your skin <laughs> from being in that environment for half a day or more. Uh, I mean, Brad. Just during the the main event here, the 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 the, the lines to the restroom on player breaks are just legendary. I mean, you're standing in a line of fifty or sixty deep just to go into a urinal. Oh uh, man! You know that. I mean, you'd rather you know probably just have to urinate against a telephone pole uh, <laughs> outdoors than walk into that bathroom after standing in line for ten minutes. So. Well, what I'm really fascinated about is like most casinos are sort of like. Uh, I guess you would say uh, d- designed specifically to play mind games with the people inside. So as someone who's like just floating around in that space all the time, do you ever feel like you're in some sort of like CIA MK Ultra brainwashing program? <laughs> Actually, you know, this is the, the poker room is almost a, an alternate universe. So what you're talking about with the casino playing a mind game, all that's true you know, over the years with, you know, there's no windows. You don't get to see the light outside, the music they play, the, the little scent that they bring into near the slot machines. They're all playing mind games with you. And then what we're dealing with is, like I said, a separate universe because it's just, it's just these large, uh, not even convention rooms, like convention halls that are filled with 200 poker tables. And you are again in an incredibly cloistered environment. That, that you know there are no windows. There's no real life. I, I used to joke that if the Soviets, when there used to be Soviets, had bombed Chicago or, or had troops coming into Chicago midway <laughs> during the World Series, nobody there would know it until they went back home three weeks later. You just you're just <laughs> shut off. You're just shut off from news. You're shut off from life. So it's really bizarre. And then all most of these people, Brad, a lot of them are poker professionals with some amateurs thrown in, and this is their life. So they're they're you know they're they're 
just camped down there for six or seven weeks, walking around every day playing poker and telling people what hands they just played. And it's just it's just hard to process any information outside of poker. Well, it's a good thing that your your one escape from the world of poker happens to be an environment that's oddly just like that in, in terms of bowling alleys, uh, in terms of just noise, shut off from light in many cases. I guess, uh, you know, I'm fascinated to talk to you about this. You've been very kind of candid over the years about your love of bowling, both as a, a participant as well as, um, you know, the, the, the TV and, and, and how it's televised as a sport. So I kind of want to go in both places. But let me start with just when did you kind of discover bowling and how long has it been a part of your life? Uh, I, I I don't even remember when I discovered bowling because I've been bowling since I was in you know, elementary school. Yeah. And uh, I had the good fortune of growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, which gave us two bowling choices. Oh, yeah. The, the D.C., Maryland, Baltimore area has the duck pins and the ten pins. And we used to, there was some alleys, like the one closest to me, that offered both. Where downstairs was duck pins and the second floor was ten pins. Yep. And we would do both as we were growing up. And we learned quickly uh, that the, that you don't duck pin first and then ten pin second, which <laughs> it's, it's just incredible. Like like in, in baseball, when you're on, on the on deck circle, you know, some of the guys put the, those weights around their bats so the bats are heavier and then they, they feel quicker when they go to into the batter's box. So you have to ten you have to do the regular bowling first because then the, the other pins, the duck pin balls, feel so light to you. If you reverse it, uh, a twelve pound, fourteen pound bowling ball feels like 50 pounds after you've been flinging around those little duck pin balls for a while. So I love doing both. One of my great predictions that was wrong, I have many that are wrong, is that duck pin bowling would sweep the nation. I did not understand how this this game that was so much better for kids to introduce them into bowling since it was so much easier to handle the balls and your scores would be higher. I didn't understand how that wouldn't become a nationwide thing, and it never did, and I still can't understand it. So uh, I did love duck pin bowling, and I still duck pin bowl when I go back to the Maryland area to this day, even though there are very few alleys left that do it. So when I was a kid, my father worked at Johns Hopkins. We lived in Towson, Maryland, and I grew up on duck pin too. And I'm right with you. In fact, when we moved to Ohio when I was in fourth grade, I completely abandoned bowling because I, I enjoyed duck pin a lot more as a kid, and, and it just wasn't a part of our life. But it was a huge part of the culture there in Maryland. We, I feel like we went all the time. I'm sure you did. It, it was just it was so accessible and it was so inexpensive. It was so family friendly. It was so easy to do. Uh, everything was in a bowling alley, including you know, you'd go over to the to, to the grill and, and get you get a hot dog or get a soda. And then they have the arcade, of course. You play air hockey, you play foosball, you play pinball machines. Uh, and we did do it all the time. And it just it just makes me so sad. I was talking to the proprietor, the one in Silver Spring, Maryland, I go to all the time. He told me when he bought that alley in the 1970s, they were 22 bowling centers in Virginia, Maryland, Baltimore, uh, that did duck pin bowling. And now they're down to four that wow. do duck pin bowling, which is just, it just, it makes you want to cry. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just so enjoyable. And the other thing, Brad, is that, you know, you see now, you know, they, they got with the, with regular bowling, they, they have, the, they put the rails up for the kids so that you're not mm-hmm. throwing a gutter ball at a time, which is just another reason to tell you, well, why aren't we duck pin bowling? Cause you, you, you don't even need the rails. Yeah. I mean, obviously it makes sense from a marketing standpoint to put up the rails so kids aren't going to be throwing a gutter ball. Well, in duck pin bowling, you're not throwing a gutter ball. It's, it's just easy to score uh, every frame. So I, I, I just don't get it. And it's, I'm never going to be right on this now because all bowling centers are, have had to recreate themselves uh, and they've changed the whole experience. But too bad duck pin bowling never took off. How good of a bowler are you? I mean, I know that's a question that you probably get whenever you tell people that you bowl, but like, what, what's an average score for you? And um, can you tell us anything about your technique? Uh, 
the average score has not changed forever. Uh, you know, I generally I, I only get the bowl now. Maybe I'm lucky if I bowl three or four times a year, uh, and and I just always bowl in about a 140, 145. I've never, you know, I don't think about that much. I don't work on the game, but uh, when I, I usually bowl three games, I usually bowl a terrible first game, a great second game, and somewhere in the middle of the third game, it's always in the 140s. Uh, I'm very happy if I can, you know, bowl a 160 average for a set, which is very rare. Uh, as far as my technique goes, that, you know, that that is otherworldly, and I've never been able to change it. And people actually <laughs> gather to watch my technique. Oh. And uh, hey, it's just, I, I never got out. All I can tell you is I have a, the old Fred Flintstone approach uh, when I'm on the approach. A lot of little pitter-patter steps, which I cannot, I cannot release the ball if I take a normal four, five, six approach. I just I can't get into rhythm. So since I was a kid, and I do this with duck pins or ten pins, before I release the ball, I, I approach it with a bunch of little tiny steps that make kids just fall off the chair laughing. They think I'm <laughs> like filming a movie or a commercial. And when we used to bowl, even adults, when I used to bowl a 24 hour 24 hour alley in uh, in Maryland, in Prince George's County, Maryland, after we got off work at one or two in the morning. A lot of the other people bowling there would gather around to watch me for two or three frames. And there was a lot of shift workers, like police police officers, people working for the Postal Service. And 10 or 15 of them, all drinking beers at 1 or 2 in the morning, would just sit there and watch me for about 5 or 10 minutes. And it was you know, better than going to the movies. So I've, I've never been able to change that technique. And uh, now it's just part of me. Are you are you good spinning the ball? I've never I was never able to spin the ball. Uh, and it always, I think, stunted my enjoyment of the game to know that there's a better way to do this and I just can't do it. I felt like my dad trying to learn how to golf and he could never swing properly. And I just, as someone who had a good swing naturally, I could really relate from my bowling uh, frustrations. Uh, well, I, I don't get frustrated, but I'm like you. I've never been able to spin the ball. It's a very flat delivery. There's no hook at all, no spin. And it doesn't, it, has, it, doesn't, it stunts our growth in terms of being able to bowl well, you and me. But for me, it's never stunted my, my, my joy of the game. Uh, I just know when I'm bowling with somebody who, for the first time, I see that they can spin it and have a regular hook. I just know I'm an underdog to begin with because they just they're going to get better pin action. They know what they're doing, and mine is a very flat delivery. Plus, I don't bowl the ball very quickly since since it doesn't go down with a lot of revs and a lot of speed. My whole life, I've always bowled like I was 75 years old, and eventually <laughs> I will be 75 years old, and I'll be prepared for it. So yeah, it's a very slow ball going down there, and I got to hit the pocket just right to get really good pin action. Are you a heavy ball or a light ball man? I've always been a 12-pounder, and once in a while, it'll go to 13, but I'm more likely to go to 11, so I'm not a heavy ball guy. I just 12, 12 pounds has been my ball since college. Any, uh, any custom balls that you've ever owned, or do you always just grab what's in the lane? Just grab what's in the lane, and I, I've, I've always been bothered by, you know, it's, again, it's just a, a, a bad thing on the bowling center's marketing it's, or, or the bowling industry in general. Sometimes it's hard to find your ball. You know, it makes sense if, you know, all 12-pound balls were, you know, black and all 14-pound balls were pink. And just there's, there's easy ways to systemize how to find your ball. And sometimes you're looking for five or 10 minutes for, you know, it's like three 12-pound balls that are available in the whole alley because the place is, is crowded. And, of course, only one of them might have the holes right for you. So it just takes too long to find a ball. So sometimes that gets a little frustrating. Now you, I've read where you've talked about bowling on TV as being a joyous celebration of life's unexpected moments. What did you mean by that? You sure that was me? I think it was. I, I'm, yeah, I'm telling no, you. Yeah. I, 
I'm sure it was. Uh, <laughs> I must have been self-medicated at the time. I'm usually not that optimistic. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I play poker a lot. I, I love playing poker, but I usually make fun of the poker industry and of poker players. Uh, I love bowlers, and I love the bowling industry. And is watching bowling on TV. Uh, I used to write a sports television column, so I yep. had to watch sports on TV around the clock uh, in the 1980s, late 1980s, 1990s, and into the uh, the new century. And it's it just all of it was the same, and all of it got me tired. And when I rediscovered bowling, because I'd watched it as a kid, when I rediscovered bowling on TV as an adult, and by the way, Chris Schenkel was still doing it at that time, you know, because he started in the 1960s and he was still doing it uh, into the early 1990s. It was such an oasis uh, compared to all the other clutter of college basketball and tennis and golf and football and baseball. It was so much easier to watch. It was contained in a 90-minute period. You you had you had the drama of a game go from start to finish in twenty minutes. You have the whole thing completed then the three or four matches in the old step ladder format all completed within ninety minutes. You would be rooting for or against people. Plus, I always love the bowlers in general, Brad. They just you, 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 the, the other athletes don't seem real. You know, either they're buffed yeah. up, you know, they're 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 Barry Bonds or the NFL linemen. They're all six five and three hundred pounds, or they can leap through the roof like NBA players. As I used to say, bowlers, the, the, the PBA tour had bowlers who were married to wives that we could actually ask out. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they were all more human. They, were, they just seemed more, you know, slice of life, more organic. And I never understood why some of America's sports fans didn't embrace bowlers more because they weren't this privileged, pampered, multimillionaire set. They were just you and me trying to make it out there. And it's a very hard living to make. You know, nobody's even making hardly anybody makes a hundred grand bowling, and you, you know you go from town to town in RVs, or you have a roommate on the road. You know, I don't know if I want Pete Weber as a roommate. Uh, you, you've got other bowlers as your roommates. It's just the whole amalgamation of it just felt so joyous to sit down to that one thing on Saturday afternoon on ABC every week and just watch these guys do it, and then it was gone. And I just I just looked forward to it. Plus, it's it's not even the whole year round. It's just in the winter and spring, so it'd be fifteen or twenty telecasts. And those became my favorite sports telecasts to watch in any given week. Yeah, I did see you wrote that it, it, Trump would really help himself if he could find a way to resurrect, you know, TV bowling. And I, I know you're being facetious, but is there a way this sport can have a comeback, or do you think it is simply just aged out of the uh, of the cultural uh, mindset of younger viewers? Even if it's not aged out of the cultural mindset, and you might be right about that. Just the economics. Like, I get mad now that some of my, uh, I live in the Los Angeles area, which has some old style bowling centers, which had to convert. So, just the economics of bowling today, that's a big piece of real estate, and real estate costs a lot. So, their, their monthly rent is a lot. So, they had to find a better way to monetize that space. And so, they've turned into, you know, you know Bolero and Lucky Strike. And it's, it's almost like a discotheque right. that happens to have bowling alleys. And it's, you know, rock and bowl and all this business and games cost at my local center now, where I used to pay in the afternoon, I could play, you know, bowl for 250 a game. You can't bowl at any time of the day for less than $6. Most of the time, it's $8, $9. In New York City, you have to take out a second mortgage if you want to bowl three games <laughs> with three friends. So, I don't think there's any going back on that, on that unfortunately. So I don't know how to fix it. I know it's broken, and I know that if more people were exposed to bowling, they would love it. And to go back to duck pins, they'd really love if they were kids if they could ball, ball, bowl with smaller balls and smaller pins. But I don't think I just don't think the industry is going to resurrect itself into the manner that we would love it to. As someone who's only followed bowling trends from from afar, two things that have happened in the sport have really fascinated me. One is the shift in technique for 
rollers to be using two hands and having these really sort of violent throws. So I guess I'll start there. What's your take on that? Are you a purist who thinks that's just not the right way to bowl? Or are you someone who is like, hey, do, I mean, as someone who takes, you know, by your own admission, a, a thousand steps to get to the to the line, are you cool with anyone's technique as long as it's, it works for them? I, it's, it's a two-part answer for you. First of all, I'm cool with anybody's technique and anything they want to do in life, period. Yeah. It takes me back to one, the whole thing about being a purist, it's just wrong. That's the way we always did it. Or this, this, this is, this is the way it is. So it, 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 purists, you know, prevent people from doing things they want to do. Essentially, and uh, beyond, you know, bowling with two hands, you know, you know they'll, they'll refer to the Bible to why you know gay marriage is is incorrect. You know, people should just be able to live their lives in any particular way. So I, I always fight against that 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 this is tradition and this is pure. I love watching. I was just I, I was agape the first time I saw Jason Belmonte, who essentially triggered this whole thing and now when i walk into a bowling center once in a while and i we were bowling here in las vegas uh about three weeks ago when a couple of families were near us and two of the four kids they were under 10 years old were using the two-handed technique i just you know i just wanted to adopt them uh i wanted to take <laughs> them in I, I i never had kids of my own and these are kids that already like to bowl and they're bowling two-handed so it was fascinating so it it, it shocks me when i watch jason belmonte and and many other the pro bowlers and a lot of europeans started doing it before we did when they bowl two with the two hands, both the power and the accuracy, which I just don't know how they get both of them, just they're, they're so precise, and it's just it's just fascinating to watch. It's you know it's it's to me it's like seeing an Apollo rocket going to the sky. I have no idea how it does that. I have no idea the science of how it gets started. I don't even know how a plane lifts off the ground. So an Apollo rocket going in uh, years ago and going into the atmosphere is incredible to me. Same thing with the two-handed bowlers. I can watch them all day. Uh, the other big thing in terms of bowling culture that I've noticed is is the trend for perfect games to be far more attainable. And this was a hot topic ten years ago in media when people talked about is it is it getting diluted? Is it um, you know is it just too easy to get a perfect game? In fact, in in looking around on the internet last night, I saw a guy get a perfect game in ninety seconds. So like, there's almost like a new breed of YouTube stunt bowlers that's just trying to top itself all the time. D- do you feel as though um, the the, the the ease of perfect games has it all had an impact on the sport and not at a macro level, but I just mean the perception of how special that moment used to be. Yeah, it's nicer when it was more special and it was more difficult. And there's no question with the equipment changes and the lanes might be easy uh, with the oil patterns. And I like to talk about oil patterns, but you know, the balls changed to, 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 and they, the ball is the key thing with the equipment. So it's made it easier with the, the ball they use now, the urethane compared to the, 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 the former balls they use to get much more action. So it does take away from that special moment. I don't think it's as bad as, you know, I, I've always liked track and field and particularly in the Olympics. And the one event I just will not even acknowledge anymore is the pole vault because the pole vault, that's where the, <laughs> all the equipment, you know, they were using like a bamboo stick to, to vault themselves before. And, and now it's almost like they're blasted out of a cannon, whatever uh, whatever they're using. So you know, it was it was hard to get to 15 feet, and now it's easy to get to 19 feet or 20 feet. So it hasn't been as bad in bowling, but because of all the changes, it is easier. And uh, and again, people get better, and, and technology gets better. And you know, I don't think it's a nutrition question, and, and the fact that we're evolving as a, as a as human beings, but athletes all get bigger, better, stronger, faster. So you do have more 300 games, and you do lose a special moment. But you, sh- you certainly haven't lost it when it's on a, a, a TV uh, on a TV finals. When, when there's a PBA 300 game, which is rare during uh, televised finals, that's still pretty special. 
Yeah, I mean, and to wrap up here, I mean, you you as a fan of the sport of bowling, can you kind of help our audience maybe uncover a few names of of personalities that you thought were your favorite to watch, and and maybe I'll I'll, I'll you know, encourage them to go you know see what they can find of them on YouTube. Yeah, when uh, first of all, when you're, when I was growing up and I'd watch it then in, in the late '60s and early '70s, and, and, and during the heyday of, of Earl Anthony, yeah, uh, and Dick and Dick Weber. And it was also great because I was left-handed, so I favored anybody who was a left-handed bowler. And uh, the left-handers always supposedly, if they're good, have an advantage because they're playing on a different part of the lane and the oil's not breaking down and, and this and that. But I, I, I just swore by Earl Anthony, uh, and he was so much fun to watch. And, and Dick Weber was, was so so solid. They seemed like gentlemen. Again, you know, I remember when I was in my uh, teens or 20s, and you'd see movies, and 40- and 50-year-olds seemed like adults, and we seemed like punks. And then when I became 30, 40 myself, I didn't feel like an adult. I, you know, I, we didn't dress the same way they used to. The, the, the guys in the, 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 the pro bowlers in the 60s and 70s, they seem more like gentlemen. They seem more uh, a part of a different era that we can't replicate now. So I, I came up with those guys. And then when I rediscovered bowling in uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s, with guys who are still bowling today, incredibly, Walter Way Williams and Pete Weber and Norm Duke, and again, when you have a left-hander in there, I go, oh, that's great. I can't believe he's a left-hander. Those guys are so much fun to watch. And then Amleto Monticelli, who was Venezuelan, but you didn't have that many non-Americans on the tour then. He had such an air to him. Uh, but to watch Pete Weber, because you will either attach yourself to him in a positive way or a negative way. And for me, it was always negative. I always really Yeah, me too. Whoever was against Pete Weber. I hate the fact that he came up with the crotch chop, which is a ridiculous celebration <laughs> involving yes. the crotch. Okay. But as much as I hate Pete Weber, and the, 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 the TV people smartly use this now in the opening of the, the PPA tour on ESPN, they, he, he created the single most favorite moment for me in my, all my bowling television history of watching. After he won, I believe it was a major he won about five years ago, and he went into a just, he was just off the charts in, in just a, a biblical celebration, and he, he, he yells out, who do you think you are? I am. Now, you can't appreciate <laughs> those words are weird. And I'll repeat them again. Who do you think you are? I am. To watch him deliver those words in five seconds, I, I just, I, when I, I'm watching the opening, now we have DVRs, I will stop it and watch it a second or third time because I get so much joy. Sometimes I run over to the liquor cabinet to get a quick shot of Sambuca to use it to watch, to drink it while I'm watching the second or third time. But I love detaching myself to Pete Weber and then rooting against them. I, I did root a lot for Walter Ray Williams always because I just like the way he, he handled himself. He's the all-time leader now. He passed Earl Anthony in career PBA titles. And the other thing great about bowling, Brad, is, and this is close to tenant golf this way, is that obviously our NBA and NFL athletes, they're done by the time they're in their mid-30s. These bowlers who start in their 20s can still win out on the tour over the age of 50, right. up to 55. There's a senior tour, too, but Walter Wade Williams and Pete Weber and Norm Duke have all won titles past the age of 50, which is just fascinating to see the 53-year-old beat the 24-year-old. So, you know, just to go back and watch any of these things, when you watch the old ones, you see a different style of bowling, and you see just a whole different approach into just their, their sensibility as people. And then, of course, with the MTV culture, you do have more of the crotch chop Pete Weber's over the last generation, and it's fun to watch as well. I remember watching Pete Weber on a Sports Center highlight. He was playing some rookie in the finals, and he he won, and he starts screaming, "He's not getting his first win against me!" And I'm like, "I can't believe they're letting this happen! Like this is insane!" Um, and yeah. you're the one who pointed out that that Walter Ray Williams might be America's number one two sport star since he's also a champion horseshoe thrower. 
It's amazing. I know, again, I know these are not two sports. You know, it's not like Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders or or Jim Thorpe or Jesse Owens. But <laughs> it's horseshoes and bowling, and he's a world champion in both. It's hard to be a world champion in anything. So you, you, we, we might want to be little uh, bowling. We might want to be little horseshoes. Obviously, you, you don't have to be a, the same type of athlete, even though you still have to train. And by the way, a bowl, you know the, the, the amount of stress that bowlers go through during the week, both physical and emotional, is incredible. And their bodies break down. I mean, they're bowling 30, 40 games over five, six days to, to make the top five. And so you're going to have back problems. You're going to have wrist problems. You're going to have knee problems. And it's, hard to, and it's hard to be at the top of your sport. As you just pointed out, Walter Ray Williams, has been a multiple champion, world champion in both horseshoe throwing and bowling. God bless him. <laughs> well, you're very busy, man. You've given us a ton of time. We want to encourage everyone to be watching you on the coverage of the World Series of Poker. Follow you on Twitter at Norman Chad and check you out at normanchad.com. Any final, t- I tell you what, any final words of wisdom about, uh, any, any words of wisdom about how we can bring bowling back to the forefront of American sports culture? You know, everybody, especially the people who bowl, often don't have washer dryers in their unit. I remember growing up and being in an apartment in college and coming out and not having a job and you're living in a garden apartment complex and you got to go down to use the washer dryer and you got to have quarters. If you combine a laundromat with a bowling alley, I love this. I think you're on to something because the other thing about when you do laundry and sometimes I'm in Las Vegas for a period of time and sometimes I'm here for three weeks and there's a washer. I got to go out to a laundromat. I got to go downstairs in the, in the, in the, uh, in the hotel to use their washer dryer. The, the thing you hate about washer dryers is that you have to wait. It's a, it's a long process. You got to you got to go back there and, and change the, the clothes out of the washer and put them into the dryer. Then you got to wait for them to be out of the dryer. All that, you, you, where are you going to go? Sometimes you bring you know you bring a magazine. You go out for thirty minutes. If that's all taking place while you're bowling, oh my, this is killing two ball, two two birds with one stone. Yeah, this is incredible. You have the joy of bowling and drinking and eating while you're bowling, and then you go check on your laundry every 30 minutes, and in the two hours you're bowling, your laundry's taken care of. My goodness, I'm glad you asked me this. This is the best idea I've ever had. It is really good. I, I As someone who did a league like right out of college and, and you know, just more as a drinking exercise than anything, I, I fully could imagine just, you know, packing up five weeks of laundry and going over and spending four hours in the laundromat uh, bowling, which... God bless you if you can pull it off, my friend. Maybe let's get a let's let's get over to Maryland and, and open that place up next year. That's the place to start it. <laughs> well, Norbert, thank you again for the time. Best of luck, and uh, we really appreciate talking to you about this. All right, thanks a lot, Brett. And we are back in the sports world. There are all sorts of cultural commentators who want to rip athletes and media when they do things that are interesting or show off their personalities. They label them distractions, and we label that hogwash. The only thing that we need in life to distract us from work are the passions that we have away from sports. So, Adam, right now on the show, we're going to talk about the things that are distracting us. Why don't you go first? Distract us, Adam. What's on your mind? Yeah, so I watched maybe, so uh, in case we haven't reminded the audience enough, we won a Peabody this year, and I already saw a documentary, (laughs) um, I already saw a documentary this year that I I am positive will be on the list for next year's Peabody's, and that is The Defiant Ones. So HBO did a lot of promotion around the show, but it's basically the story of Jimmy Iovine, a New York 
guy who be, who kind of falls into record producing and goes on to produce John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks, and eventually works with Dr. Dre. Um, and then kind of parallel pathing that is the story of Dr. Dre and NWA, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and basically how these two um, innovators came together. And it's a four-part series, so a little over four hours. I have watched it four times since Friday. It aired Friday night or Thursday night. Um, I watched it that night. I stayed up till 1230 watching it. And then HBO reran it all weekend. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, really creatively inspiring. Two guys, neither with a college education, who uh, eventually founded Beats together um, and are are now more or less billionaires. Uh, I just thought it was a really it did a really jo- good job of telling their story. Um, it was well produced, and I'd recommend. Anyone watch the Defiant Ones on HBO? Do you have a favorite documentary of all time, Adam? Uh, a favorite documentary of all time. I still, I actually would still say Hoop Dreams. I think it was so. Um, it seemed like a simple. It seems like a simple idea now uh, because of the age of reality TV that we're in. But the fact that. Um, the crew followed these two kids, both from different backgrounds um, and whose basketball careers had ups and downs, followed them over the course of their high school career and into college, I think was a fantastic commitment. And I think uh, gave us an insight not only into the pressure that athletes deal with, but especially the pressures that young black men in a city like Chicago uh, the, the socioeconomic difficulties and different social pressures that they go through. To me, that still stands out as probably my favorite of all time. You know, Hoop Dreams not nominated for an Oscar. I know, it's crazy. What uh, about you? I'm trying to look at who who actually got that nomination instead. Okay, so it came out in '94. Uh, can you believe that was that long ago? No, it seems crazy. Um, and Roger Ebert, I think, named it his movie of the year, and it was like above, yeah. even you know, above even other stuff. Uh, I'm not seeing it here. I'm not going to torture our listeners in it, but oh, the winner was a strong, clear vision. Uh, do you remember what that documentary was? No, and I'm not trying to disparage it, but like I've never heard of it, and. And I'm someone who watches a ton of documentaries and like would list things like King of Kong, Fog of War, um, you know, all those types of, you know, a murder ball, like all those films are like at the top of my favorite, favorite movies of all time. And um, I can't remember this at all. So, well, you know what else is really good in a totally different way, but pumping iron with Arnold. I mean, that movie put bodybuilding on the map literally um should we have lou ferrigno on the show it is should we have lou ferrigno on the show do you is that a question of course we should all right i'll reach out maybe we can uh uh maybe we can uh maybe we can see if you can come on because people forget lou is like a huge part of pumping iron absolutely 
He was the young, naive kid who later became Incredible Hulk. Hulk. All right, well, I'll make sure I get him on the same episode that I get Cedric Sobalos on, since I'm sure he'll turn me down as well, just like said. All right, Adam. Hey, I I still don't know, after after everything we've done and after his long career, and he's got a break, Stefan Marbury, what the fuck, man? How many times do we have to ask? That he's not on the show? Starbury? Yeah. Yeah, we start. We're how many episodes are we in? What? Which one? We're over eighty episodes in, and not a peep from Marbury, other than our, our, our initial correspondence with them. Yeah, he was a, our Good. second, our second ever Twitter uh, follower, and he still hasn't been on. It's a damn shame. <laughs> well, you know, tough time zone difference in China, man. I do a lot of business with our China offices. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, to schedule. You know, what are you gonna do? Uh, let's let's uh. Let's see if we can get him for episode 100. Let's make uh, it. Yeah, okay. We should start right now pitching for episode 100. Yeah, I agree. Okay, my distraction. I saw a trailer for a new movie called Leatherface. Leatherface, of course, the antagonist, maybe protagonist, I don't know, up for debate, from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Adam, this is how the movie was described. The film will mark the eighth overall entry in the franchise, which currently includes, in addition to Toby Hooper's original, three sequels, a remake, a prequel to the remake, and a modern-day, quote, direct sequel. Okay. Okay. That is is our current fucked-up state of movie affairs in a nutshell. Yeah. I have no idea where these movies are in relation to the original. And I'm someone who follows this very closely. So here's my look question. Look at how many spider look at how many Spider-Mans we've had in the past ten years. It's I know, crazy. but at least you have a you have a sense for these are the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans, and then these are the Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans, and these are the new new guy McNewerson Spider-Mans, whatever his name is. Tom Holland. Yeah, and you and you like you have a sense for oh by the way, was that movie good? Did you see it? No, I have not seen it yet, but it's on the weekend plans. So you know the, the which era that was. You have a certain kind of like delineation point. These Texas chainsaws have been like all over the map in terms of trying to figure out like how they actually fit into the world of 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 you know Toby Hooper's vision versus the other visions. So just, here's a good just a good example, Adam. Okay. I watched this and I had no idea if Leatherface will be one of these. A prequel to the original, a sequel to the original, a sequel to the sequels of the original, a sequel to the remake, a prequel to the remake, a remake of the remake, or a sequel to the prequel, which kind of makes it the original. Huh. You just blew my brain just exploded. (laughs) Adam, uh, when we're talking about Leatherface, we don't like to say brains exploded. We like to say brains were chainsawed. (laughs) They were splattered. Uh, well, consider me chainsaw because I have no idea what you just said. I think that the, see the hard part with this is that they they they're they're showing in the in the trailer that like it's an origin story for Leatherface, which implies okay. that it's a a prequel of some kind. But it also shows him later, so it might only be a prequel in the way that Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare, I believe, showed you more of the origin story of Freddy, but it was not what you would consider to be a prequel. It was a, uh, it was actually supposed to be the end of the series, the final sequel. Huh. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> You're you are how, mentally how do, checked out on this. <laughs> how how do we? No, I'm just I'm trying to figure out how to respond. How do we figure out what this is? Other than going to see it, how and will you see this? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> you won't. But you sound so bewildered by it and so curious. Don't you want to know the answer to your question? I mean, Tamba Ali has a lot of rap coming out this fall, Adam. <laughs> I don't know that we've, I'm going to have the, that I'm on the bandwidth to get into this. No, I mean, I, I think I think it's fine. I just these these sequels are, and, and prequels are usually really bad. If it was if it was like a true reboot with a new creative voice, I would do it. But I I, I actually like talking about horror movies more than I like watching them for the most part. Uh-huh. Although I do really have a soft spot for like these old school slashers. Yeah, I don't watch them at all. I I I don't like life is scary and upsetting enough. I don't like I I've never understood the attraction of um wanting to be scared. That exhilaration uh it's just not something I need in my life, but more power to you. I really like watching horror movies in a crowded theater with an energetic crowd. I'm less of a fan of just like breaking it down in my house. Yeah, I could understand that. I'm a fan of neither of those things, (laughs) Well, but I am. So, so this reminds me of another sports movie allegedly on the horizon and kind of, again, kind of bums me out. So you saw Creed, the sequel to the Rocky movies, right? I did. So, they're talking about making the sequel to Creed. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Can I just say something? No, I yeah. didn't. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> oh, you haven't seen Creed yet? No, my wife saw it with her dad, so I've heard all about it, but I never I didn't get out to see it. Okay. Well, I would recommend adding that to your list because it's about basically uh Apollo Creed's uh bastard son, for lack of a better term. Um decides to take up boxing and is mentored by Rocky. It's a really great storyline. Sylvester Stallone was nominated for best supporting actor, um, Academy award, uh, and great storyline. I'm a little bit disappointed that the sequel to this movie is supposed to be a prequel to all of the Rocky movies where we see a young Apollo Creed in training because I thought that the Creed movie did such a good job in establishing a new character. I don't know why you'd backpedal now. Also Stallone is done with the Rocky movies, So that may explain it. Uh, why doesn't I, I thought rumor was that he was going to fight Ivan Drago in this one. And the next movie. Yeah. I don't think so. Online, I saw some memes of like him versus Ivan Drago, which I think would be an awesome extension for the character to like beat the guy who killed your dad in the ring. Oh, that's interesting. But I, but on that timeline, Ivan Drago would be like 65, 70 years old. Yeah, but we're talking about a movie franchise that saw Rocky win the heavyweight championship at like 85 against, <laughs> against a legitimate Antonio Tarver, right? Played him, right? He he lost the fight, as a matter of fact, but he did fight Antonio Tarver as an old man. <laughs> That's utterly ridiculous. Actually, the, the the best opponent for Creed would be Paulie's robot. 
<laughs> oh man, I forgot from part three. Ah, oh, man. Well, I'll catch up to it right after I see Leatherface. I'll I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. I'll go to the theater. I've never seen a scary movie in the theater. I will go with you if you decide. No, to see it. no, not Leatherface. I want to bring you then to it, the rebooted it with the scary clown. That's gonna jack uh, your shit up, man. Great. There goes my sleep. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Let's end with some shout outs. I'm gonna shout out um, Norman Chad. Really funny guy. Great for him to make time during you know a time where he's living in a casino for six weeks. Uh, and and check out all the World Series of Poker coverage. Hopefully they'll it'll still be going on by the time that um, that you hear this. And then uh, Adam, who else you want to shout out? Well, as usual, uh, I want to shout out the scariest people in my life: my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee. Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin, Ron. Love those guys. Love all they do. Meech uh, has won two World Series of Poker bracelets. Um, <laughs> but in the, in, the, in the seldom seen backgammon division. <laughs> and in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.